Hey there, Pastor Mark Jordan here from Hope Church. Thank you for stopping by and welcome to our online ministry. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can stay up to date on all the content that's released. And while you're online, visit us at our webpage at placeofhope.org. Hope Church is on a mission to introduce people to Jesus and fuel their love for Him. And we hope that this message today is helpful and inspiring for you as you continue to take your next step on your faith journey. Once again, thanks for visiting us and make sure to check us out at placeofhope.org. Well, good morning, everybody. I sure am glad to see you here today, whether you're in the space in the room or whether you are worshiping with us online. A very warm and special welcome to you. It is always great to be in God's house, especially as uh, I recognize for many of the families in the room, it's the first Sunday after the start of the school year. And so I know that uh, the fatigue and the exhaustion could have given you a reason to stay away, but I'm sure the need for God's help and mercy and blessing as you confront a new school year uh, is all you need to propel you here today, right? Wasn't quite as humorous as I thought it sounded. Anyway, I'm glad you are here. Speaking of failing, my failing jokes, failing faith, we're going to kick off a new message series today that will take us up the entire month of August. It's called Failing Faith. And this series is actually based on a book by a pastor uh, named Wade Bearden, I think. I thought I had it written down here. I do, I do somewhere, anyway. Uh, but I think his name is Wade Bearden. I'm just slipping my mind. Uh, but I, I discovered this book earlier in the year as we were mapping out our message series. And the idea and the content behind it was enough to just capture my imagination and my thought. This whole thing about failing faith. Now, it is sort of a play on words, because the author is not saying that faith fails us, okay? What he is outlining and illustrating is how our approach to faith can fail us. And so there is a very distinct difference. It is easy for us when we want to approach faith from a self-centered point of view to get to a point where we realize that it doesn't work in the real world. That's the subtitle of the book, that it doesn't work in the real world. It's, an e it's easy for us to get to this point where we think, well, maybe we missed the boat. Maybe faith isn't real. Maybe God isn't real. And so as a result, we can fall away from faith or we can believe that our faith fails us. And so the author's point is that true, authentic faith in the living Lord Jesus Christ never fails us. What we must do, however, is overcome some of those problem areas in our life where we have been guilty of making or creating faith to be more self-centered and to be even, dare I say, Americanized, to speak from our cultural context. What we'll see as we go through the book, and hopefully as you do some self-reflection, is that the author came to realize that his faith was based on comfort and control. It was based on comfort and control versus surrender to our Savior. The underlying theme that works within the book is the author, who is a pastor, came to realize that there was a breakdown or a gap, so to speak, in his approach or understanding of faith when he learned that his father was diagnosed with leukemia. And so the book, as a subtext, goes throughout this author, this pastor, this Christian's experience of faith when life did not live up to his expectations, or when faith did not live up to his expectations, or dare I say, when God did not live up to his expectations. Have you ever been there? 
when life doesn't live up to your expectations, when God doesn't live up to your expectations, we feel we get this experience that there is a failure in our faith. And one of the things that the author writes really comes to challenge us and that he realized our Americanized approach to faith does not work in the real world. It just doesn't. Do you feel convicted? I do. That's okay. It's a good thing, actually, because what we are trying to do is get out of our cultural context and to get into the authentic, living Savior that is Jesus Christ. And our journey through this content today, hopefully, will challenge you in some of those areas where you didn't even realize you had some struggles, like Bearden, like Pastor Mark, and help us to get to that point where we say, Dear Lord, forgive me for trying to make my faith about comfort and control, and help me to surrender to you. Are you with me? All right. So this message is about embracing Christ. Embracing Christ. And I hope that we can all come to a point where we embrace Christ as we get into this. So let's have a quick prayer before we dig in anything else. Almighty God, I give you thanks for today and I thank you for this gathering of believers and seekers alike here at Hope Church. Whether we are in this property on Charles Hardy Parkway or we are worshiping online or maybe another point during the week or month or year, whenever it may be, whenever we perhaps stumble upon this podcast or this video. But Lord God, I pray that you confront us with our own tendency to make our faith about comfort and control, to convict us, and to help us to confess that we need to surrender to you. And so may the message that we experience today come directly from you. Help me to get out of the way, Lord God, that everything that I say, speak, everything that we feel is rooted firmly in you. In the name of your Son and our Savior Jesus whom we are called to embrace today, I pray. Amen and amen. Let's turn our attention to our scripture lesson this morning, which comes from the Gospel of Mark, the 10th chapter, verses 17 through 22. If you're familiar with this, it is known as the encounter that Christ had with the rich young ruler. This is a good point if you've not done so yet already to pull out your Hope Church Plus app on your favorite internet-enabled device. Or we've also inserted the, uh, the notes inside your info guide. But these are the words that we see from the Gospel of Mark in the encounter of Jesus and the rich young ruler. Setting out on his journey, talking about Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We'll press pause really quickly there. Thank you, Pam. Now notice what we see here. Jesus is on his journey and a man runs up to him and what does he do? Say kneel. He kneels. That's right. He kneels. So he is automatically confronting Jesus, coming to Jesus with a perspective and perception of authority. He recognizes that Jesus is someone he needs to surrender to, right? He recognizes that Jesus has an authority. He has a lordship, and he wants to be led by Jesus, and he wants, so he kneels, and he asks this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Let's continue. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery. Do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. 
He said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The word of God for God's people. Let's give thanks to God. Amen? Amen. Amen. That last phrase there about how the rich young ruler went away disheartened because he had great possessions, realized who it was or what it was that possessed whom, right? He didn't have great possessions. His great position, possessions had him. And this is something that we have to come to mind and grips with within our own heart, mind, body, soul, strength, right? About how easy it is for us not to have possessions, but to be had by our possessions, to be had by our things. But we have to also come back and recognize that there's something beautiful transpiring and taking place here. And I love how the Gospel of Mark puts it because we see a much more tender encounter that Jesus has with this young man than oftentimes we want to project it in ourselves. Why do we project it otherwise? because we want to judge otherwise, right? We want to make ourselves the standard. And so we read this again, realizing the first thing that we see is the rich young ruler comes up and he kneels before Jesus. He acknowledges that that Jesus is someone who is worthy of being knelt to. And he wants to know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, well, follow the commandments. But before that, something else happened. Jesus asked the man, why do you call me good? Does that cause any conflict for anybody as you read that? Jesus asked, why do you call me good? Does it cause any conflict for anybody? I mean, even this morning, and I've gone through this passage, I mean, a gajillion times in my spiritual life. Even this morning, I had to go back and say, God, why is it that we see this question from Christ come to the man and says, why do you call me good? Do you think Jesus was downplaying his own role? No. To this point, Jesus had already begun revealing himself, but just to the disciples. And he told the disciples, asked the disciples, to put it in my New International Mark version, don't go telling everybody who I am just yet. Because we can't handle the crowds and the throngs of people that are going to come to look just for miracles. Millions as they may be. We've got to preach the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus asks this man who automatically we see comes and acknowledges that Jesus is someone worthy to bow down to. Why is it you call me good? Now hear it with this inflection. Why does he call me good? Jesus, I think, was inviting the rich young ruler to take that next step. You're already acknowledging that there is something special and unique about this man who stands before you. Take that next step. The same thing may be true for you and me here today. We may come in here and we can kneel, we can raise our hands, we can sing high, we can pray low, we can do all these things. And Jesus says, I need you to take that next step. You acknowledge that I am special, you acknowledge that I am unique, you acknowledge that I am good, now acknowledge that I am God. Take that next step. That convicts me. 
because of how frequently when I go to do that, I recognize that the things that I think I have actually have me. And there's a risk in acknowledging that Jesus is beyond just good, that he is God. Because if Jesus can call us and invite us and command us in something, that means there is a little bit of a risk in it for us that we might be required to let it all go in order to follow him. One of the things that we find unique in this passage with Mark, specifically, is that Jesus loved the rich young ruler, just like he loves all of us. He loves us even before we take that step and say, I'm going to go all the way with you, Jesus. I'm going to embrace, embrace you, and I'm going to follow you with everything. Jesus loves us first before we take that final step into complete surrender. I hope that you find that to be good news. Because it's easy for us to read this and feel, feel condemnation or judgment. Maybe you even felt like you wanted to condemn or judge the rich young ruler there. Like I have for many, many times. But again, hear that invitation to take that final step. You know that Jesus is unique. You know that Jesus is special. You know that Jesus is here. Move beyond just being a fan of Jesus and become a follower. That's what Christ is asking us to do. But the rich young ruler couldn't do it because his possessions had him. He didn't have his possessions. And he walked away disheartened. He walked away disheartened. Now, one of the things that has been a producing point of conflict for many people is to hear these words Sell all that you have, give to the poor, and follow me. Now, the thing that's unique about this is if Jesus were to be standing right here in front of all of us today, he probably would have something different to tell every single one of us. Maybe your possessions don't have you, but something else does. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's a political party or a concept. Maybe it's whatever it is. But something has you if you're not willing to go all the way and say, Jesus, I'm all in. Something has you. What is it? What is it? What is it that snags your spirit when Jesus says, come to me, and you're like, I got to get rid of that too? The reality is, is that Jesus, ultimately what he wants is to help us to recognize that there is a measurable blessing in surrendering whatever it is that holds us as opposed to us holding it. There is a measurable blessing in surrendering that and allowing it to go into God's hands and to be used by God for the sake of helping to change and transform the world. And that is that litmus test, if you will, to find out, do you have something or does something have you? And if something has you, and that's true for every single person in this room experiencing this message, we need to be willing to give it to Jesus. So that's the encounter of Jesus and the rich young ruler. He wanted, this is talking about Jesus, he wanted the man to take that next step from fan to follower, to go give Jesus your life, and to allow Jesus to work and to mold and shape you into who he needs and intends you to be all along.
There's a concept that Bearden wrote about in this first chapter. In fact, in fact, it's the title of the first chapter called Christian Karma. Christian Karma, which is his description, description which is why I put it in quote marks, the spiritualized embodiment of the American dream. And much like the early Christians, because this was true back in the time of Jesus, much like the early Christians, we struggle with transforming grace, receiving transforming grace, and our good deeds. We are incentive-based individuals, right? We are incentive-based individuals. It is easier for us to think that we're going to get something good out of doing something and to go all forward, all, you know, four bore with, whole bore with it. Boy, I'm messing up today. Having a sip of coffee, Jordan. I don't want to weather. It's easier for us to go all the way if we think there's something good for us on the other end. Now, fear is also another motivating factor, right? Fear will motivate us. But oftentimes, we want the goodies. We want the goodies. And so that's why we will oftentimes do something. You know, when I was a little child, it might have been to get a star or a smiley face sticker on my, on my paper. When I was a little bit older, it was to get the approval of my parents or my friends. When I got a little bit older, it was to get the approval of my, my beautiful bride. And still, to get the approval of people who go to church and do life with us at Hope Church, my struggle is that I, I didn't mention God there, did I? What is it that holds me? What holds me is approval. I need it. And so, when we think about karma, from a Christianized point of view, what we recognize is that we are willing to do certain things in hopes and in belief that we're going to get something good out of it. I'm willing to put skin in the game if I think that I'm going to get something good on the other side. And so this whole concept of Christian karma is a challenging thing because we can all sit here this morning and say, well, I don't believe in karma. I don't believe that when you put good things out into the universe, the universe brings good things back to you, right? I wouldn't make that sound absurd because it is absurd. Like the universe cares. But we do this in our own sense that I, I feel an incentive to, to do good things, whether it's a, a smiley face sticker or a star or a peck on the cheek and a job well done. We do things to put out there in hopes of getting things in return. Christian karma isn't a thing, but the reason we struggle with it, we struggle with it is the thing that Jesus talked about that is a thing is that you reap what you sow. Those are two distinctly different things. Because when you sow an apple seed, you don't hope to get a pineapple in return. When you sow a tomato seed, you're not doing it to get tangerines. You reap what you sow. Jesus teaches us that the things that we put out into the world are the things that we come to experience and to understand. And God works within those things to bless us and to help us keep moving forward with him. We think that that is karma. It's not karma. It's sowing and reaping. It is investing those things into the world, into our relationships, into our church, into the place where we work, where we, where we learn, where we play. Right? It's putting God seeds out into the world. It's shining God light wherever we are. Not for the sake of getting something out of it, but that we can put something into it. That was the problem with the rich young ruler. He was looking for, what's in it for me? 
And Jesus is saying, forget about that. Think about all of these things you could put out into the world with the blessings that you have. Next week we're going to talk about blessings. But think about all these things that you can put back out into the world for the sake of God. Not for the sake of self. And that's where again that rub came. The friction between what has you and what do you have. What do you have and what has you. The rub comes when every single one of us is confronted by Jesus. And we're challenged with that, that question, that idea Am I just a fan or am I going to be a follower? What must come next? The first thing that we need to recognize is that God is not a tool to get what we want. God is not a tool to get what we want. The rich young ruler put more faith and more focus on his abilities and his assets. That's where the rich young ruler put his emphasis he put it on his abilities and his assets. And in some ways, he might have even looked at this and said, these are the things that God has given me. These are the responsibilities that I have, that I can do something in the world to make a difference for him. Just don't make me let them all go. Right? Let me hold on to them a little bit longer. Let me have my trinkets. Let me have my toys. Let me have my abilities and my assets. And God, I want you to bless what it is that I am blessing the world with. Again, the focus is not on God. It's not on the Lord. It's on self. And so what we see here is that we all must fight the inertia of the prosperity gospel. We all must fight the inertia of the prosperity gospel. This is the thing that the author Bearden learned that struggled, that he struggled with the most when he was working out his faith in Christ. Was that even though he didn't believe in the prosperity gospel, he behaved as though he did. I'm guilty of that too. Are you guilty of it? I don't believe in the prosperity gospel. Name it and claim it. But I oftentimes behave as though I do. We all must fight the inertia of the prosperity gospel. Which is about Christian karma. I'm going to do good so I can get good. As opposed to surrender. Sowing and reaping. And say, God, I want to patiently and maybe painstakingly plant these seeds, nurture them, tend them, harvest them, and do what needs to be done through the whole process. You see, the prosperity gospel negates the process. It says, if you pray hard enough, God will give you the best parking spot at the shopping mall. Ask Joel Osteen. He wrote about that in the book. Now you're catching on. It's about tending and being tender toward the things that God has put in our lives. Not because we have them, but because we don't want them to have us. The next thing is we need to recognize that everyone needs Christ because everyone is broken. Can I get a witness? We all need Jesus because we are all broken. One of my favorite quotes, I believe it's by the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, said, God allows brokenness in our lives so that we can see where we end and where he begins. Everyone needs Christ because we're all broken. When Jesus told the rich young ruler that you lack one thing, 
perhaps that one thing he was saying he lacked is the awareness of his necessity of grace. He lacked the awareness to realize how lost he was without the help and the hope and the healing of God. That's what he lacked. That's so often what I lack. How about you? I fall so easily into that Stuart Smalley theology. For any fans of Saturday Night Live back when it was a funny show, I mean, some of you in here and you're like 50 may not know that. I'm kidding, 45, but still. Uh, Al Franken used to play his character named John Smalley. He would stand in the mirror and he would, Stuart Smalley, yeah, not John, Stuart Smalley, yeah. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and dadgummit, people like me. He was his whole, that was his virtue of living. The awareness of grace tells us that we're all broken and that we all need God's help because so frequently we act and behave as though we're not broken. What we recognize is that suffering is part of the human experience and our relationship with God. You can't do much of a cursory reading of the book of Genesis to realize that God suffers too. What causes suffering in God's heart? Say sin. Sin. Sin Sin causes suffering in God's heart. God created Adam and Eve through pure and perfect relationship, and they sinned, and God banished them. We read a few verses or chapters further into Genesis chapter 6 where God looks at the totality of humanity and says, this is wicked. I regret that I ever made them. And sin broke God's heart. God's relationship with us is also one of suffering. God isn't asking us to suffer because he wants to punish us. He wants us to recognize what the consequence of sin does to our spiritual center, our spiritual core. It is like it's a device that severs that relationship, that severs the connection. I recently went through a problem with my my iPhone, which, you know, first of all, problems, right? Problem with my iPhone. Where the microphone on it would just at some point quit working. The reality was that I didn't know when it quit working until whoever I was talking to would call back and say, hey, I guess the call dropped. It was very frequently my wife. But I also had people tell me that the sound quality got to be really, really bad. And I was only able to get a couple words in or interpret a couple words. That's a really good analogy for what happens with us when we have sin in our lives. Because we keep trying to talk to God, but it's like there's a breakdown in that connection. It's like there's something that has severed the line. And we can just get out there talking about how good we are and how smart we are and how many people like us. Therefore, we deserve all the goodness. We deserve the best parking spot. And God's quit listening. God's like, dial me back and let's try again. Suffering is part of our human experience and in our relationship with him. Which, my friends, is why Jesus had to suffer. Jesus experienced the totality of the human and divine connection all in his body and his mind and his heart and his soul. He experienced the misery of suffering from God's point of view when he recognized his connection with the world that he created and he loved, even in spite of the waywardness, was broken. But also as a human, 
when God heaped all of the sin of the entire world on his brood, bruised and battered and shredded shoulders to take to the cross, Jesus felt the sting of separation from God that he had never once experienced. I like to say that Christ took the nails because he could take the nails over the thought of spending an eternity without you. And that is so true. We don't like suffering because we so easily slip into that idea of the prosperity gospel. If God is for me, then I wouldn't be going through bad things. If God is good, bad things wouldn't happen to good people. All of these things that the world tries to convince us is proof and evidence that God isn't real, that God doesn't love us, or God doesn't have a purpose for our lives. All of these things are the tricks of the enemy that try to convince us that there is something better in here that we could or should or would do if we just knew how good we could be. If we just knew how good we could make the world. Comfort and control, not surrender. We don't want to suffer. But suffering has been part of our experience with the world and with God since Adam and Eve ate from the fruit in the garden. And from the time the first raindrop fell on earth before the flood. Before a single lash of a whip was thrown at Jesus' body. Before he walked out of the grave with a nail-scarred hand or two. But also before we read in Revelation, the time will come when God will declare an end to suffering. And with those nail-scarred hands, will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And then remind us, as collected all of our tears in a bottle, that there is perspective for every single one that's in the scripture. So maybe the tears that we cry, the suffering that we feel... It's all about trying to remind us that we live in a broken world and every single one of us needs the love of Christ. And so our third point brings us to this moment in our series and service where we must recognize that receiving grace depends on our response to Jesus. Hear Jesus ask you this morning, why do you call me good? Take that next step. Move beyond being a fan to being a follower. Move beyond your tacit hold to the prosperity gospel. Recognize that suffering is part of our human experience. And it isn't just about God trying to make us better for this world, but the world to come. And then convict us of those areas where we slip into legalism. Legalism tries to convince us that we are ultimately all we need. That if we do enough, we can earn our salvation. I got a witness over here, praise the Lord. Right? Legalism tries to tell us that it's all about us. The answer to that is love. God's love that we experience and God's love that we are called to express. We must confess that grace is all that we need. All that we need. Not the stuff that we think we have. Because those things ultimately have us. Do they not? It's that loving grace of Jesus that is what we need. 
And so with that, we can hear and heed Christ's invitation to follow me. Not follow Mark, but follow Jesus. To completely and wholeheartedly follow Jesus. So friends, however it is that you find yourself here today, as we bring this message to a close, I want you to think about how you yourself struggle with that prosperity gospel. Name it and claim it, baby. I want you to wrestle a little bit with what it means to suffer in this world so that we can get to the point where the things that break God's heart also break ours. And to recognize that we slip into those patterns of legalism all too easily. And what God is asking us to do is to live a life of love. To experience the fullness of his grace that comes only from him. So that we can express that to the world. Don't let the things that we have, have us. Rather be willing to do what Christ said from the very beginning. Why do you call me good? Take that next step. See beyond just the good things and experience the best and the grace that comes to God that meets you in your brokenness and calls you to live your life not being held by your possessions, but in such a way that you seek to give Jesus to the world. And it's in the name of Christ. I lift this message in prayer to you, Almighty God. Amen. Pray with me, please, as the band comes forward. Almighty God, I thank you for this acknowledgement of how easy it is for us to slip to these deadly patterns of the prosperity gospel and thinking that we don't deserve to suffer and that our salvation and goodness in the world depends only on us. Forgive us for that. And when we hear you ask the question, why is it that we call you good? Even if we are on our knees acknowledging you as someone who's worthy of calling good, help us to take that next step and to recognize that you are God and that you want us to surrender our stuff lest the stuff take us captive. And so, Lord God, in those places, in those areas where we do want our faith to be about comfort and control, help us to follow your example and to surrender it all so that we may serve you and experience even the that comes from the ashes. And so, Lord God, as we bring this message to a close, I want to ask that you open up our hearts and our minds and our very lives to what it is that you want to do within us and do in the world through us. Don't let it be about us, but be all about you. Forgive us when we do otherwise, but help us to experience the fullness and the wholeness of who you are that we may share that with the world. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen and amen. Thank you again for joining us today. We are glad that you stopped by. Again, we want to encourage you to visit us online at placeofhope.org. If you're in the Paulding County area there, you can get service times, directions, and information about all of our awesome activities for children, for students, and for adults. Again, Hope Church is on a mission to introduce people to Jesus and fuel their love for Him, and we hope to provide you the heart fuel you need to follow Jesus. Thanks again.